0: So we've got a new, new series starting this morning. On to a better note. New series starting this morning called Stand. And I think this series is really, really critically important to us to understand some things because I, I don't know about you, but, but I know that the Bible calls us to stand out, to, to make a stand for who Christ is, to make a stand for what he stands for and who we are as followers of Christ. But, but there's standing out in the right way. At the right time for the right reason. And then there's standing out the wrong way, if you know what I mean. You know, like when I was in Uganda and we're driving down the road, there's a person standing on the, on the, you know, island in between traffic coming this way and traffic going that way. And he's preaching with a Bible in his hand as cars go past. And I'm kind of like, that's an absolute waste of your time, because none of those cars were stopping to listen about Jesus. They weren't interested. It's like, and there's a guy, you could see in his face, he thought he was doing something great and of significance because he's preaching away there as people go, vroom, 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 It's just an absolutely pointless, pathetic waste of time. I, I know sometimes when I go into town and there's people standing on the street corner on Queen Street going, you're a filthy rotten sinner. You I just want to go up and punch them in the face. Because that doesn't accomplish anything. Telling people how wrong they are doesn't help someone. What we need to do is tell them how right God is for them, because that will help them. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance, not the condemning them. Jesus said this, you know, uh, we love John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But we forget verse 17 that says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to show it his love and his grace and his mercy. And so see so the guy standing there, and it's just a pointless thing. And so how do we make this stand for Christ in our world today, but make a stand for the right things in the right way at the right time? Because if we compromise on the wrong things and the wrong ways at the wrong times, it can cost us way more than we could ever imagine in our lives. And so how do we make a stand for the things that matter the most to us? And as we go through these series, as we go through these few weeks we talk about, we're going to be looking at the life of Daniel and Meshach, Shabrach and Abednego and uh, we're going to have a look at what they did. But before we get into that. I want to lay a platform for you this morning that we're about to read a scripture out of Daniel. But before we get to that, you have to understand that at this time in history, there was a king called King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian, who had just conquered Israel. They just conquered Jerusalem. He completely destroyed the city, completely destroyed the city. He had booned the city down, basically. He had burned down the temple where they used to worship Yahweh, the one and true God. God as we know him and he burned down the temple but not only had he burnt down the temple he then took all their religious artifacts or the things that they used in worshiping him like in our case would be instruments and he destroyed all of those things and so King Nebuchadnezzar basically when he destroyed Jerusalem destroyed the temple and destroyed their religious symbols really what he was saying to Israel is that the worship of your God is now obsolete. I have cancelled out the one that you say is the one and true God. He completely, totally eliminated any way that they could worship or serve their God. And it goes on and it says this in 1st Daniel verses uh, 3 to 5, it says, if I get my words muddled today, just forgive me, it's probably just jet lag, right. If I fall asleep, just nudge me, I'll wake up and I'll continue where I left off. It says in... Verse 3, the king ordered, I don't even know how to say that name, I'm not going to try. Chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. It sounds basically like me, Rimmer, and Dave, really. Hampson, without defect, It pretty much describes us in a nutshell, doesn't it? Can you guys loosen up a little bit this morning? I really appreciate it. Show aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And so... What he does here is not only does he destroy Jerusalem and does he destroy the temple and destroys their uh, things that they used to worship God, but then he goes and gets the best of the best, all the best young men of Israel, and he instructs his chief official to get all of the best of the best and bring them away. And he goes, and I want you to teach them our language, I want you to teach them our literature, and I want you to feed them the same food that I get. And in reality, what he is saying here is he wants to, I I want to teach them their language. I want them to speak how we speak. I want them to use the same language that we use. Because he probably understood, as you should understand as Christ followers, that your words actually frame your world. What you say actually creates the world that you live in. And so he's saying, I want them to speak like we speak. Teach them our language. Teach them the literature of the Babylonians because I want them to think how we think. I want them to speak our language and I want them to think how we think. I want to take all the best young men and I want to do this because he's basically saying to Israel, not, am, not only am I destroying Jerusalem, not I only am I destroying your present, but I'm actually going to destroy your future as well. I'm going to take your future young men, I'm going to teach them my language, I'm going to teach them to believe what I believe, and they're going to become my chief officials, they're going to become my government of my country, and you won't have them. And so he's not just destroying Jerusalem, but he's destroying their future by taking the best of their leaders and saying that they're not going to be yours anymore. In fact, his strategy here was really intentional. In other words, what he's saying is that the king wants them to think like Babylonians think, Speak like Babylonians speak, behave like Babylonians behave, and believe what Babylonians believe. I think that this mirrors a strategy that our enemy, the devil, actually is doing today in our world. We, we are being so hammered today about what you can say and what you can't say, what you should believe and what you shouldn't believe, how you should behave and how you shouldn't behave. Yes? Yes? And if you disagree with any of that, you get absolutely roasted. And so what people do is they shrink back into their shells and they became very quiet about what they believe. But if the Bible says that we're meant to stand out, how do we stand out in the right way for the right reasons in the right place? You see, I believe that the enemy's strategy is to get everybody, including Christians, who disregards the teaching of our one true God. To disregard them and to submit and surrender to his systems or the world's systems or what the world believes or what the world says. I think that right now in our world and in our nation that we're in a full-on spiritual attack against people today as the devil lies and as he deceives and he tries to lure people away from God's best to live according to to a lower standard that he is trying to set. And that's why I think this series is so important because I think that it's completely and totally impossible to be a sort of Christian and have any sense of spiritual success and victory against the temptations of the darkness of the world that we live in. And that's a little bit heavy this morning. I just don't think you can kind of, sort of Be a Christ follower and have the victory that you want to have. It's a little bit like me saying this. Can I work out once a year and have that kind of a body? I mean, I know I'm pretty close. Man, you're a hard crowd this morning. You know, if I just work out once a year, can I have this kind of a body? If I just do this, can I have that kind of thing? It's a little bit like, you know... You can't go to church 90 minutes a week. In fact, hold on a sec. 75 minutes a week, because most of you are 50 minutes late. So, oh, you felt that burn, didn't you? You felt that burn. Yeah, that was intentional. I hope it stings you a little bit. You can't go to church 90 minutes a week, and that's it, and expect to be growing and thriving spiritually. It's just not enough. It won't work. It's like going to the gym once and expecting to have the right kind of body. You have to make God, the presence of God, a priority in your life. It has to be a priority where you seek Him, where you depend on Him, where you're living and dwelling in His Word, where it's feeding you, renewing your mind. You're learning to walk by faith and not by sight. Because if you walk your life by what you see instead of what you hear, you will always be disappointed. Because faith doesn't come from what you see in the natural, it's from what you hear in the spiritual. The way that you walk out in the Christian life is based on what you hear, because what you hear is what you see. His faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. When you walk by what he says instead of what you see, it gives you supernatural sightseeing, your ability to see what God sees in your future. And that's why you can consider pure joy when you go through trials of many kind because instead of looking at the trials, what you hear is all things work together for good for those who love God and according to his purpose, then you too can have a Joseph thing of saying what you intended for evil, God worked for good. But you can't have that sight if you're not pressing into his presence 90 minutes a week in church isn't going to do that. You've got to hear his spirit guide you. You can't be a sort of kind of Christian and have a life of victory that he wants you to have. In fact, in Ephesians 6, it says this. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand. Everyone say stand. Against the devil's schemes, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, because it's going to come, Being a Christian doesn't make you safe. It just makes you more powerful than your situation because you've got God on your side. You may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. And that's why this series is called Stand because sometimes you have to take a stand for what matters most, but it has to be in the right way at the right time and in the right season. Because if we do it in the wrong way, we'll do more damage for the kingdom than we will do good. And I'd submit to you that if you're never standing out and you're always blending in, then I would question your commitment to following Christ fully. Because if you are fully following Him with your whole heart, you will stand out. You know, I used to work, when I first left school, I started at the bottom working in the parts department. I ended up being the regional manager for New Zealand. But I started out working in parts department. I, I worked with mechanics. Now, are there any mechanics here? There's no mechanics here? Whew, safe. Mechanics are an incredible breed of person. If I gave them the wrong part, they would throw the wrong part at my head, along with a few choice words of how they would describe my abilities. Something of the lines of, Craig, you useless, beep, 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 as it hit me in the head. They would swear around me all the time, they would use God's name in vain all the time. The time. And you know what I did? Nothing. But what I did do is at lunchtime, I'd read my Bible while I ate my sandwiches. I didn't try and make a stand in my workplace saying, don't use God's name and bone, cut your swearing out. What I did is I just pursued Christ in front of them. I let them see me serious about following. You know what happened six months down the track? They would apologize around me every time they swore or every time they used God's name in vain, not because I said anything. Francis Assisi said this. He says, I preach the gospel at all times and sometimes I use words. Your life will communicate more than your words ever will. And if I'd stood up there and said, don't say that without showing them my life, then it's just words. Some of you get worried about that sort of stuff, but I'm trying to tell you that I don't think making a stand over that is the right stand. I think there are more important things to make a stand over. Some of you are probably not agreeing with me right now. Here's the thing. When you are following him and showing people that you're following him, you will be different. You will look different. You will be set apart. The word holy means to be set apart. We know the scripture says be holy as I am holy. In other words, be different. Be set apart. Your life must look different. It must stand out. There are times that you have to stand out if you're truly following Jesus. And that's where we're going to go over the next few weeks, looking at the life of Daniel and his few friends. In chapter 1 of Daniel, in verse 6 to 7, the story continues and it says, among those who are chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, I don't know if I said that right, and Azariah. A chief official gave them new names to Daniel. To Daniel he gave him the name Paltijah, <coughs> to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. He changed their names. We, we don't really know how old these boys were but scholars and theologians say that they were anywhere between the ages of 12 to 15 years of age and the first thing that they did is they, they changed their name because they wanted to strip their identity they were taken a thousand miles away from their home and crushed of all dignity and the first thing the king wants to do is he wants to change their names I, I believe we live in a world that is trying to re-identify who we are It's trying to change how we identify ourselves. Rather than identifying ourselves by who created us, we have a world that says that we should identify ourselves by our behaviors, by our sexual preferences, by the things that we do. That makes us who we are. No, no, no. What makes you who you are is whose image you have been designed in. And these boys, the first thing that they took off them were their names. And the reason why this was so significant is because their names in the Hebrew language were all names for worshiping God they were all names that were about the worship of God and the Babylonian names that they replaced them with were all names about worshipping the pagan gods. And so every time they're called their new Babylonian names, they are reminded that you are no longer identified with that God. You are no longer can identify with Him. You are no longer tied to the worship of God, but you are tied to the worship of what we want. And the new names tied them to the worship of pagan gods. So every time someone would call them by their new name, it was a reminder that you're supposed to serve these pagan gods, not the God that you used to serve. You don't serve Yahweh anymore because Yahweh doesn't exist. We destroyed him. We canceled him out. We made him obsolete. They stripped him of their identity, and then the next thing they decided is that they were going to change their diet. They are going to change their diet. You're supposed to eat the food that's prepared for the king. Now, of all the things that they did to them, made them speak their language, made them uh, learn their behaviors and their customs, changed their names, stripped them of their identity, of the one thing of eating the king's food, I don't know about you, but I'll be like, oh, I'm all good for that. Because the king had the best, yeah? The best food, the best wine. Of of all the horrible things that happened to them, this seems to me like the one thing that's not horrible. This seems to me like the only good thing that's happening for them right now, right now. I mean, I would want to eat the king's food. I don't know about you. He probably had Eiffel at steak, wrapped in bacon with a red wine jus. He probably had that kind of stuff. I think that's what kings eat. Murray, is that what you ate at your house? (laughs) No, not quite. The problem was, here's the thing, the problem was that the food prepared for the king, the meat, the wine, were dedicated to pagan gods. wasn't dedicated to the one and only true God. And so for Daniel and his friends, this became a problem for them because they wanted to honor God and worship Yahweh in every possible way. And to eat and drink anything dedicated to pagan lines to them was crossing the line. And in their minds, it was disrespectful to God. Because Daniel goes on to say in verse 8, it said, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself in this way. I think the great thing about Daniel, if there's one thing that, that, that we can understand, is that he didn't fight back when his name was changed. I think this is significant because I think Daniel said, you can call me whatever you want, but I know who I am. And I know who I serve and I know the God that I worship. You can call me whatever you want, but it doesn't change who I am. That was not the thing that Daniel made us stand over. I'll always worship and I'll always know my God and I'll always serve my God. And we know that with Daniel because he continued to pray to God when you read further on in the story, when it was illegal for him to do so. And we understand that if you go further on in the story, you find that Meshach, Shabrak, and Abednego got thrown into the fiery furnace because they worship God. So you can change our name, but you're not going to change who we are. He didn't make a stand over his name. He didn't defend his name. He took a stand when it became clear that God's name was going to be defamed. Not when his name, was going to be defamed. He took a stand when it was God's name that was going to be insulted by him eating that food. And it says here that he resolved himself not to defile himself this way. He made a predetermined resolution, a predetermined decision before the temptation was ever there to eat the food. He predecided what he would do and what he would not do. And that's why I believe that Daniel was successful. You see, I think that if he hadn't predecided and you put the food in front of him, he would have done what I would do. I would have gone, I've got to eat something, and I'm hungry, and it looks pretty darn good. Like this once won't hurt. I can always ask God to forgive me later. Does this sound familiar to anybody? For me, not for you guys, because you guys are, are really good. Just for me, because I'll, I'll just I'll just do it this once because it's not that big a deal. It's just it's just once, and you know what? I ha- I have to eat something anyway, so. I'm sure this is going to be okay. Here's the thing, he never got to that stage of the temptation of the food because he predetermined, before that chance even came along, he resolved in his heart ahead of time. He made a decision before he was faced with the temptation to do what was right. The first thing you've you got to understand is your success and my success And so many different spiritual avenues of our world will be determined by what we decide ahead of time. If we decide ahead of time, then when the time comes, we're not having to process what our decision will be because we've already made our decision. Are you with me this morning? Most of us get into trouble because we get ourselves into situations that we've never really thought about nor made a predetermined decision about what we would do when we face it. But here, he's saying that I'm going to predetermine, I've resolved in my heart before the temptation even comes that I'm not going to do this. There are some things that you need to predetermine in your heart that you, you actually need to have a conversation with yourself and decide now that no matter what the future looks like, no matter what happens and no matter what such and such happens or I'm just never going to do that or I'm never going to do this. So I, I have predetermined to serve God and honor him in this way. So, you know, like if you're single before you even start dating, you want to predetermine how you're going to function in that relationship. Not wait until you're in it and the hormones and the passions and everything start to race at a million miles an hour and then you're trying to make a decision as you're going along because that doesn't work and that's why in New Zealand, even though we give away condoms for Africa, we have the highest teenage pregnancy rate per capita in the Western world because when you are in the middle of your passions, you don't make predetermined decisions. You do the Nike ad. If it feels good, just do it. Are you with me this morning? But as much as you must predetermine what you're not going to do, you need to predetermine what you are going to do. Predetermine what you are going to do. Not just what you're not going to do, but what am I going to do? For me, I've predetermined that going to church every single week, and you're like, well, you're the pastor, you have to be here. Well, before I was a pastor, I was in church every week, without fail, twice on Sundays and during the week, that I'm going to church every single week. I'm going to worship God, and it's going to be a priority for me, and I'm going to sit under the teaching of the Word because I know that it will empower me in life. I predetermine for my family that whether they like it or not, church on Sundays, end of story are predetermined for them, because I have decided this is what we are going to do. As much as i predetermine predetermined what we're not going to do, I've also predetermined what we are going to do. And I, and I realized that in my parenting, there was a whole lot of predetermines about what my kids weren't going to do, but I didn't really have a lot of thoughts around predetermining what my kids are going to do, or how I am going to be. I, I knew things that I didn't want in my marriage, but I don't think I've ever really thought about the things that I did want in my marriage. We're so good at, at looking at the things we don't want that we forget to start to make predetermined things about the things that we do want. I've predetermined for me that I'm going to keep my eyes pure, so I'm not going to look at things that I shouldn't be looking at because I've decided, predetermined, that my marriage is more important to me than a moment of lust or temptation. I've worked hard for 25 years to kind of, sort of, understand my wife. I don't want to make a mistake and have to start again. Can I get an amen from any of the men in the place? It's hard enough as it is. It's like when I was in, in South Africa, in the Sulu culture, they allowed as many wives as they can, as long as they can afford the cows for her. It's 12 cows per woman. Farmers in New Zealand could have multiple wives. But I was saying to one of the Suleymen, why would you want to do that? One's hard enough. Yes? Just joking. Gosh. I've decided ahead of time before the temptation comes. I've predetermined. I've resolved in my heart. I've decided before the event what it is that I will do and what it is that I will not do. Because of that decision, that predetermination in your heart to do and honour God, you will have to stand out. You will automatically stand out. I remember when all my workmates came to our wedding, they'd never been to a Christian wedding in their lives. They thought it was insane that we were waiting until we got married to make love to one another. They, They couldn't get their head around it. My mate asked if there's something that didn't quite work properly or something. Like they just couldn't get their head around it. And so when they came to the wedding and they, but you know what they said to me when I got back from the honeymoon, they're like, man, I've never been to such an amazing wedding. I was so emotional as she walked out. They they were blown away. And they said, what? And they started asking me questions like, why was your wedding like that? It stood out and it enabled me an opportunity to speak into their worlds. If you're never standing out and you're always blending in, then I would suggest to you that you're not fully following Christ. And that's what these boys decided. Daniel, Meshach, Shabrak, and Abednego. They decided that they were not going to eat the food from the king's table. They predetermined in their hearts that they weren't going to do that. And so these boys, they stood out day in and day out. At breakfast, they stood out. At lunch, they stood out. At dinner, they stood out. The next day, again, they stood out. Every single day and every single month, they stood out because they would not eat the food that everybody else was eating. So while they're sitting at the table, eating something different every single day, three times a day, they stood out. Not because of what they were saying, but because of how they were living. And they stood out again and again and again. And if you're going to follow Christ fully, you're going to find that the closer that you get to him, the more that you're going to stand out. And you're not ashamed because of what he has done for you. You understand what Christ has done for you. And so it's not a shameful thing to stand out for God that has done so much for you. The story goes on and Daniel says please test your servants for 10 days and give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days and at the end of 10 days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men that ate the royal food. And so what do they do? Like There's this whole thing about standing out in the right way, in the right reasons, in the right seasons, yeah? It's so critically important because every single one of us have seen Christians stand out in the wrong way. Yes? Come on, you know them. They're the ones in the workplace that thinks everybody hates them because they're Christian, but it's not because they're Christian. It's because they're an idiot. You know? I know we're all part of the body of Christ, but I'm pretty sure some of us are the appendix. Nobody knows what you're doing, but you have the ability to blow up and kill all of us. That was a joke as well. Sheesh, tough crowd. I'll tell you what they did not do. They did not have a big protest and throw a patty and have a big fit about it. They didn't go, we're not eating the food. Like kids do at home, yes? You know, mums. Did you ever think growing up that actually the most difficult decision that you have to make every single day for the rest of your life until you die is what to cook for dinner? They didn't make a big protest. They didn't have a hissy fit. They didn't make a scene. Listen, with wisdom, they presented a plan respecting the authority that was above them. With wisdom, they presented a plan respecting the authority that was over them, and they said, hey, can we simply try something else? They were very respectful of the authority over them. I've seen some Christians in workplaces not respectful of their bosses, but having hissy fits and complaints and throwing their toys out of the cot and turning up at eight thirty because I only get paid from eight thirty and I 'm leaving at five on the dock because I don't get paid a dime for staying any later and you know what it just doesn't show respect for authority they complain all the time instead of using wisdom to come up with a plan you see you can stand out for the right reasons, the right things in the right way, or you can stand out for the wrong things in the wrong way. And there are some Christians that we know, that you know, stand out the wrong way all the time. You're going to stand out in some way. You will stand out even in the wrong way, or you're going to stand out in the right way. And we have to have wisdom. God, is this worth making a stand for? Is this something worth making a stand for or is it something that's not that big a deal? Is this something worth making a stand for? Is this really something that I should nail myself to the cross for? Is this something that I really need a stand for? You know, it's it's a little bit like with, with your children sometimes parenting. It's like, do you want to win the battle or do you want to win the war? You know what I'm saying? Do you want to win the battle? Or do you don't want to, I know with Trinity, we're dealing with the kids that they deal with in their school because they deal with all the kids that get kicked out of schools and they come from traumatic backgrounds, gang families and all that sort of stuff. They're never going to win the battle of getting these kids to stop swearing because swearing is just part of their natural language. But what they can do is they can win the battle of getting them educated so that they don't live in a poverty cycle but they actually get an education so they can get a job and they find that as they focus on educating them, the swearing and that starts to take care of itself to a degree. They're never going to win the battle of trying to get these kids to stop smoking cigarettes at lunchtime because the battle's not important. The war is they need an education because education is, is the enemy of poverty. It's what gets people jobs so that they don't live in that victim cycle mentality. And so we have to decide when it comes to standing out for God, do we want to win battles or do we want to win the war? Yeah. So is this really something that I want to nail myself to or or is it just not that big a deal? And here's the thing. Daniel, when it came to their name, no big issue. You can change my name. You can teach me the language. You can teach me your history. You can teach me your customs. You can teach all that. But the minute that you want me to eat food that's dedicated to your God and said it to my God, that's when I'm taking a stand. And they took a stand in the right way by using wisdom And by respect and authority, and it caused them to stand out three times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it goes on, it says in verse 19, the king talked with them and he found none equal. None equal to them. None equal to them. Because God gave them because they honored him. Supernatural understanding where they were able to interpret dreams and visions. And they literally redirected through that. They redirected the course of history and turned an entire pagan nation to following God. If you read the story on. Because they stood up for what mattered most. You think about this. If they had compromised on the food, if they compromised on that, And not had the courage to stand out. Nothing historic would have happened. Nothing would have changed. Nothing would have turned around. And I don't know about you, but with all of my heart, I'd rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten for blending in. I'd rather be remembered for standing out than be forgotten for blending in. We don't make a stand. We don't stand out to make a statement. We stand out because we're called to be different. We don't stand out to make a statement like some people. I'm just making a statement here. No, we stand out because we're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. It's not about making a statement. It's about showing a life that is different. And we're going to put on the full armor of God and we're going to take our stand against the enemy's tax. We're going to make a stand about those things. And as we go through these next few weeks, we will give you some tools and some, some things to help you make that stand, the right stand, in the right way, for the right reasons. And when you've done everything else in life, when you've done all that you can, you're going to learn how to stand. And the reason why we're going to stand is because Christ stood and died for us. He made a stand on our behalf, taking the sins of the world upon his life. He's called us not to conform to the thinking or the pattern or the behavior of this world but that would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, that we would talk his language, that we would think his thoughts, that we would behave his behaviors, that God has called us to this. Because he knows that if we think like he thinks, do what he does, that not only will your life be transformed, but the lives around you will be transformed. I think that we're living in a world that needs the church to stand out more than it ever has. That needs us as Christians to stand out, but not in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. But in the right way, for the right reasons.